0: you have your Bibles, open to James chapter 3, and we are picking back up. This is part 3 of Conflict Management. Now, part 1, a few weeks ago when I started, we were in Philippians as we're looking through that epistle verse by verse, and we looked at uh, conflict management by looking at a conflict that was happening in the church of Philippi with Udiah and Sintichi, and we saw how Paul addressed this conflict and how... He addressed them both by name and urged them to work in harmony and to be of the same mind and to grow in unity and resolve their conflict. Whatever that conflict was, we don't know, but we looked at the biblical ways to manage conflicts. And then last time, a couple weeks ago, I used that text as a springboard to go into what we should do to avoid negative conflict in the first place. And we looked at James chapter three. That's what we're going to continue to look at today. Last time we looked at sort of the negatives, right? What to avoid when it comes to managing conflict. Uh, today we're going to look at the positive side on what things we should focus on and seek in order to avoid the quarreling or the sinfulness uh, of conflict. So let's read our text. We're going to read James chapter 3 verse 13 uh, through the first four uh, few verses of chapter 4. The word of the Lord says, who among you is wise and understanding, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your pleasures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word now, your holy and infallible and sufficient word, I pray, God, as I would speak only that which you have spoken, and your Holy Spirit would bring the word with, with power and precision, Help us to grow in our Christ-likeness. And Lord, if there's anyone listening, either physically or uh, through the sound of my voice through the internet, God, that that are not in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would use this message, Father, to open up blinded eyes and draw sinners to salvation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're gonna continue our study on conflict management. And if you think about Most of our relationships that end not good, the majority of the time it's because conflict is not properly managed. I've noticed with believers that many of our problems, whether it be amongst a church, whether it be amongst uh, marriages or friendships, the main reason why we're not living to the fullest, so to speak, or we're not living in unity and harmony in our relationships is because of mismanaged conflict. And we all, all, we all are responsible, as Ephesians 4.3 says, to be diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. It is so important that we learn to manage conflict in a God-honoring way. And first, if you remember our study in Philippians, the whole goal of the Christian walk is to grow in Christ-likeness. Our goal as believers is to be more like Christ. Amen. And as we learn more biblical ways to manage conflict, we grow in what our goal should be, is to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. It also glorifies Christ, and it also is for the good of our neighbor. Managing conflict in a God-honoring way also increases our witness to the world and helps us advance the gospel within the world. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. And that's what we are looking at the last time and this time. When a quarrel is getting ready to break out, we need to learn to abandon that quarrel before it breaks out. Now I want to reemphasize what I mean by conflict, and that I don't mean having a disagreement with somebody, discussing differences, Uh, And those sort of things because disagreements happen and we ought to be able to discuss those. Avoiding conflict does not mean that we sweep things under the rug and don't talk about things and just hope they go away and move on with life. Because if you live long enough, you know when you try that, it usually doesn't end well and everything comes full circle, does it not? And it ends up being worse than if you had addressed it at the beginning Last time we looked at the three things that we must do to avoid this sinfulness of conflict. And again, when I say conflict, I mean what the actual biblical term is, the quarrel, the fighting, the, the escalation that turns to angry and, and anger and backbiting, the sinfulness of it, not just working out differences and disagreements. So I want to make sure that we're clear on that. We looked last time at, to avoid conflict, we must avoid using man's wisdom. And we looked here in our text at what man's wisdom is all about. And we must avoid having bitter jealousy or, or envy uh, for the things that we do not have. We have to avoid being envious and having a zeal for things that we don't have that God has not provided. Or we must avoid being envious for a certain person to do the things that you want them to do that God in his sovereignty and his providence has not allowed that person or has not ordered that person's steps to do. We looked at getting rid of not only bitter jealousy, but also selfish ambition. We have to get rid of selfish ambition. It has no place in our marriages. It has no place in our church. Uh, It has no places in our relationships. So today we're going to look at we put those things off. Now we're going to look at what are the things that we put on. What are the things that we need to focus on to pursue when it comes to managing conflicts? And well, before I do that, in my study I found one more thing we need to avoid, and I wanted to cover that today. One more thing to avoid the sinfulness of quarreling and conflicts. We must avoid grumbling and complaining. We must avoid grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2:14 says, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing." Now the context of that passage, if you remember when we went through that chapter, is all on unity. Uh, Paul opens up chapter two of Philippians telling the Church of Philippi to make his joy complete by being of the same mind, by being of the same love, by being of the same spirit. The context of this passage is to do all things in our relationships in the local church without complaining and without grumbling. So in order to avoid conflict, we need to avoid grumbling and complaining. That's internal. That's what the grumbling means. It's almost like muttering under your breath. You have a complaint and you grumble. That's a sin, by the way. And we ought to avoid that. And also the external, just complaining in general. James 5, 9 says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. My friends, complaining is a fruit of discontentment, and that will always lead to quarrel. Why? Because we don't have what we want. So we want to say and do things that will get us what we want, and that will lead to quarreling amongst other believers, uh, amongst our own church family, family, believers in general, work relationships, friendships, it will lead to conflict. All right, so what things, what we must seek. I wanted to, I wanted to add the complaining part because in my study, like I said, I saw that as just glaring that uh, oftentimes that's what causes conflict among us. So let's look at our text today. We're going to look at the things we must seek in order to avoid quarreling and avoid conflict. And the overarching principle is that we must seek and operate by God's wisdom. We must seek and operate our lives according to God's wisdom. Now that sounds simple enough. But we're going to learn as we look at what God's wisdom is, that oftentimes we're not operating in God's wisdom. We're operating according to our own wisdom. James 1 5 says, But if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, I want to remind us all what God's wisdom really is all about. It's not some mystical thing that we just ask God and he gives us these special revelations, and that's God's wisdom on how to live our life. That's not what God's wisdom is. At the book of James, he's writing to Jewish believers that have been scattered um, based on persecution. They knew exactly what the wisdom of God was in the Old Testament, biblical principles for daily life. And that's what God has given us in his word. We don't need to look for special revelation that is God's wisdom. God has given us everything that we need for spiritual life, for godliness. In the Word of God. And that's what it means when we ask for God's wisdom. We can't ask for God's wisdom and not read and study our Bible. But when we're asking for God's wisdom, it's, it's asking that we would know and understand the Scriptures more so that we would not sin against Him. Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture Is God breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When we're learning to manage conflict in a biblical way, we need to look to God's word to be trained in righteousness. And that's what scripture is for. But if you look at the next verse, verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, it says, So that the man of God may be adequate. Now that word means fitted or complete. Equipped, it says, for every good work. So Scripture is not only inspired by God, not only is it profitable for teaching and reproof, not only is it good for correcting us and training us in righteousness, it's adequate. It is sufficient so that the man or woman of God may be complete, may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So I want us to make sure that we understand that God's wisdom is not something mystical. It's his divine principles rightly applied. It's his divine principles rightly applied. God's wisdom is not theory. God's wisdom is practice. God's wisdom is active. God's wisdom, you can almost make God's wisdom synonymous with righteous living. Now we look at this text, James chapter three, we actually look at God's wisdom described starting in verse 17, where he says, but this wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. James under the unction of the Holy Spirit describes what the wisdom of God, what the foundation is like What what is, in essence, the wisdom of God? Now, you remember that the Jewish audience had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the wisdom writings of the Old Testament. Now, James goes in to describe the uh, characteristics of what the wisdom of God looks like, and that's what I want to go through today. I truly believe that these characteristics of godly wisdom, if applied to our lives, will help us to walk in peace amongst our family, friends, church family, fill in the blank. Uh, Knowing and walking in God's wisdom will help us avoid conflict. So first, you look at the text, he says, the wisdom from above is first pure. I think there's something significant there. He uses the word protos in the Greek, which literally means of first, the chiefest first, not just first in order, I think there's this is first in importance. So he says it's first pure, and now pure literally means clean, pure, chaste, modest, or innocent, stained or uh, um, uh, without sin, without stain. And he says it's first pure. So I see this as sort of the umbrella or the overarching characteristic of God's wisdom is that it's first pure, and then the rest of the list actually meet, uh, shows what it means to be pure in these other things that he says. So first, it's pure. So second, it's peaceable. Now, this word is an adjective, and this, it, it literally means being a peaceable person, somebody who's easy to get along with, somebody who's generally nice. Now, You've been around enough people to know those people that, you know, they're just really peaceable. They're easy to get along with. They're easy to talk with. That's what it means by being peaceable. And then the next word, he says gentle. Now, this means not harsh. This means to be fair or mild or even equitable. God's wisdom and walking in God's wisdom is Being gentle in our day-to-day dealings when we speak, when we act. Now, this is actually a qualification for the elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is to be gentle. Next, reasonable. Now, your version may be open to reason. It's used only once in the New Testament, and it literally means to obey or to be easily compliant or yielding. Now, does that mean somebody's always gullible? That's a different word. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about when it comes to the things of God, somebody who's easily persuaded to the truth, somebody who is easily compliant to the word of God. You know, believers love truth, do they not? If you're a believer, do you not love truth? And when somebody explains to you the better way according to Scripture— We should rejoice and we should easily yield to those things that God has said. Amen. That's what James is talking about. Wisdom from God is somebody who easily obeys our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Next, it says, full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits. I was meditating upon that, full of mercy. What does it mean to be merciful to somebody? It means not giving them what they deserve, right? Now, has God been merciful to you and I? He's not given us what we deserve, right? Which we know our sin deserves eternity in hell. It deserves the wrath of God. Somebody who's operating in the wisdom of God is somebody who is full of mercy. That literally means somebody who is, their whole capacity of their being is full of mercy. When somebody's operating in the wisdom of God and is full of mercy, they easily overlook offenses. They easily forgive others. As a matter of fact, I believe that one of the main keys to any relationship is the ability to easily forgive. The ability to easily forgive others. I'd like to say, especially within the context of our marriages, because we're... We're around each other so often as spouses, we can easily offend one another and do things that causes offense uh, and the ability to forgive and to be reminded that God has forgiven us of so much more than the offense that we just experienced by our loved one. Amen. Amen. I know Jonathan Edwards, one of his resolutions was that when he was, uh, saw sin in somebody else, whether it was sin towards him or just sin in general, uh, the first thing he would do is he would remind himself of his own sin and use that as an opportunity to repent of his own sin before he ever looks to that other person and what they have done to them. So the next time somebody offends you or says something that offends you or says something to get you you know, riled up, just be reminded, use it as an opportunity. Uh, Use it as an opportunity to remember how much the Lord Jesus Christ has shown mercy towards you and I. And that the offense that that person did towards you pales in comparison to the sin that you have done to God. When you have sinned, you have committed treason to God. You have committed Rebellion toward the one who created you and sustains you your sin towards God outweighs any sin That anybody could ever do to you So someone who's walking in the wisdom of God is full of mercy and good fruits First Corinthians 13 love thinketh no evil And what uh, the apostle Paul more than likely is saying there is uh, Love has no ill will mentally towards another person So when somebody's offended, there's no ill will towards that person. There's actually compassion and mercy and praying for that person that God would change them and that God would bring them to repentance for their sin. There's no ill will. There's no bad thinking. And that's how we ought to respond when somebody has not treated us right. We ought to pray for them and be full of mercy. The next characteristic, it says unwavering. Unwavering. Now, this literally means to not be persuaded, to be firmly planted. It seems like a contradiction when he just says a few words earlier that it says reasonable, but now unwavering. So what's the difference? Well, the difference here is to be unwavered, is to be firmly planted in the things of God, to have confidence in the word of God and to not be persuaded By what you know to believe that God has revealed in the Scripture, so in one sense we ought to be easily persuaded to the Word of Truth, and in another sense we ought to be firmly rooted and grounded upon the truth of God's Word. I think about the uh, the noble-minded Bereans uh, in the Book of Acts when Paul leaves Thessalonica and he's basically ran out of town. And he goes to Berea, and the Bible says that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they heard what Paul had said, and it says they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true, versus the Thessalonians just flat-out rejected him and ran him out of town. And that's what we ought to do. We ought to not be so quickly to believe any wind of doctrine that comes our way. That's not what God's wisdom says here. But we ought to search the scriptures daily to see if what we're hearing is true. Just as as I'm teaching up here today, Uh, we ought to search the scriptures daily to see if what I'm saying is true. And when you find that it is true and you see it in the Word of God, then you are unwavering, you are impartial. Or without partiality is another way to say that. Uh, not to be wavered and tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine, as it says in Ephesians. And then lastly, it says without hypocrisy. God's wisdom is without hypocrisy or without a disguise. You know, we're not one way on Sundays and another way throughout the week. We're not acting one way around our friends and coworkers in another way behind closed doors. That's God's wisdom that we're without. It's without hypocrisy. You study this little passage enough, chapter three, verse 13 uh, to four, verse three, and you'll see that you have two options here. You have two options. You, have, you can operate by man's wisdom. Verse 16, if you look at there, it says where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There is disorder in every evil thing. And verse 14 and 15 describe what man's wisdom is, that the centrality of man's wisdom consists of selfish ambition and self-exaltation, envy, getting what you want. And every humanistic philosophy to try to address a spiritual problem is all wrapped around selfish ambition, and envy, and jealousy. And so you can have that. You can have man's wisdom, which looks out for me and me alone, and that leads to what? It leads to disorder, it says, in every evil thing. God's wisdom, though, leads to peace. God's wisdom leads to peace. If you look at verse 18, it says, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. So those who are walking in the wisdom of God and those who have the fruit of righteousness, their seed, the things that they do, are sown in peace because they're peaceable. They're walking in the wisdom of God. And they make peace. It says there, by those who make peace, we're all called to be peacemakers. So, brothers and sisters, we have one or two options. And I've heard this. I can't tell you the source, but I've heard many Bible scholars use this term. It's either Christ or chaos. It's either Christ or chaos. We have one or two options when it comes to our relationship. It's either Christ, God's wisdom, or it's chaos, man's wisdom. So the next time you're in a conflict or the next time there are things that may lead to a conflict, whether it's relationships at home, whether it's relationships at work, whether it's relationships with other believers. Think about, am I rationalizing my actions based upon man's wisdom? Or am I humble enough to take a step back and say, how does the Word of God say I must operate right now? Even though You may think you're in the right. What does God's word say? What does God's word say? Now, and remember the context of James. You had these scattered Christians. You had persecutions breaking out. There more than likely was tremendous pressure upon these Christians. And so you see here, you see in chapter 3... James talks about the tongue being a world of iniquity and how the tongue sets a flame, a fire, a flame, a whole forest, and it's untamable. And now he goes to these uh, wisdom and conflicts and quarrels. When there's stress and pressure, conflict and quarrels abound, do they not? There was pressure amongst these Jewish persecuted believers, and Paul is addressing what they must do. They must not operate on their own wisdom when it comes to interacting and growing in unity amongst other believers, but they must operate on God's wisdom and not their own. Well, now I want to turn to address some situations that could lead to conflict and how to deal with them. And so I want to get, this is kind of more of a teaching than a preaching, but I thought it would be good to Uh, take a look at specific situations in our lives that may impose or increase risk to have a conflict and how to deal with them uh, biblically. And the first situation amongst believers is doctrinal disagreements. Doctrinal disagreements can lead to conflict. Uh, If you haven't been in a conflict when it comes to doctrinal disagreements, uh, the time's coming, you will, just a matter of time. Uh, now, we are commanded to grow as believers in our doctrine. If you look at just about every epistle that Paul wrote, he exhorted that church to grow in unity in a way that grew in their like-mindedness. You'll see that a lot in the epistles. You see that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul implored them to be of the same mind, he says to be of the same spirit, to be of the same love. So in a sense, believers and specifically those in the local church are commanded to center their lives around the word of God and to grow in the way we think. We ought to always be getting closer to Christ in the way we think. So what I'm saying is that our doctrinal beliefs should grow and to be like-minded over time. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to agree on every single doctrine. When man fell in the garden, not only did sin separate man from Christ, but also our ability to clearly hear God's word also fell. You see, Adam and Eve could hear clearly when God spoke. God has spoken in his word, but because we are sinful man, we cannot clearly hear and understand the word of God. That's why studying takes hard work. Exegeting scripture, looking at the original languages, the historical context, all of that is what we all should do so we can clearly hear what God's word has said. Saying that, there will be doctrinal differences, and that can lead to a conflict, and I've seen it happen over some of the smallest doctrinal differences. I've seen believers have tremendous conflict. So how do we avoid that? How do we, how do we avoid that without sweeping those things under the rug? Because we ought to talk about our differences. Um, how, have you ever been in a situation where you had a disagreement with somebody, doctrine or not, where you knew 100% that you were right and that person was wrong? Could have been you know, the color of the sky, I mean, whatever. And you were arguing that you knew in your mind 100% that I am right. And then days go by or weeks go by or even years. And you learn something new and then it's like, oh wow, I was actually completely wrong. And that person was right. Has Has that ever happened to anyone? Just me? Yeah, okay, I see some head nod. So how do you know what you're arguing right now you're not wrong? Think about that a minute. Now, so I am saying that so that when we have discussions about doctrinal differences, that we all would be, as God's wisdom says, reasonable. That we all would be gentle. That we all would be open to be sharpened and to hear each other out with patience, love, and kindness. When we're discussing doctrinal differences... We must use God's wisdom and not man's wisdom. We must be open to yield to the truth, even if that means your position is wrong. Matthew Henry said this about these situations within the church. He says, quote, How happy were it for the church if those that have a clearness in disputable things would be satisfied to have it to themselves before God and not impose those things upon others and make them terms of communions, than which nothing is more opposite to Christian liberty, nor more destructive both to the peace of churches and the peace of consciences. What, what is Matthew Henry saying there? He's saying that when it comes to disputable things, when you see that you have a clearness, that you know what the truth is that don't make those terms of communion, don't make those terms of, I'm only going to hang out and have fellowship with the people that believe or even practice these things, which are disputable things in the Bible. There are very clear doctrines in the scripture, but there are also a lot of unclear things. Even the apostle Peter mentions that, that there are many things that are unclear in scripture. And so we we have to be able to A, be open. Uh, B, not offend our brother and sister by our doctrinal differences. And C, not impose the disputable things onto others and make them terms of communion. Next is addressing sin. Addressing sin. Do you think addressing sin could cause a conflict? Yeah, absolutely, right? Now, are we commanded and exhorted in Scripture to address sin? With non-believers, with the gospel and with believers. Amen. We are commanded and exhorted if we see sin in others that we are to address it. Matthew 18:15 says if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Luke 17:3 is a parallel passage to that. Now late manuscripts added against you if your brother sins against you go show him in uh, his fault in private. Either way, whether it's he's sinning against you or you see sin in your brother, we are commanded and exhorted to go to them in private to show them the way. Now, if they've sinned against you, do you wait for them to come to you, or do you go to them? Now, we're talking not about petty offenses. We're not talking about small things that could be a sin or just uh, an offense. We're talking the the passage in Matthew is talking about a sin. When you see sin, if somebody has sinned against you, the Bible says you're commanded to go to your brother or sister in private. Now, there is a biblical way to do that. Uh, that will help not cause a conflict. First, you must look and evaluate your own hearts. Man's wisdom is first, or God's wisdom is first pure. So we must take a look at our own hearts. We must see if we have the, our, a log in our eye. Before we go approach our brother and sister, we must approach with gentleness. We must approach with gentleness. We don't want an issue like this to break out in a quarrel or a fight or a conflict. So we must go with gentleness. Not only that, we must also self-reflect and ask ourselves, are we open? Are we open to receive a rebuke if we've sinned? So put yourself in the other person's shoes and ask, how would I like to be treated if I had sinned and somebody was coming to me? Next, we have offering constructive criticisms. So there may be times where it's not necessarily a sinful issue, but you have a constructive criticism or a critique or something to offer a brother or sister. It may not be a sin issue, like I said. It may not be even a spiritual thing. Uh, But first, we must, again, evaluate our motives. Why do we want to correct somebody? Is it our place to do so? And we must pray and use God's wisdom and be gentle, again, full of mercy and encourage. And I would encourage that if we are going to offer a critique or constructive criticism, that we do it with Scripture and not merely our opinions. Now, a believer, if you long for the truth, you want to hear truth. And we want to be open so that we can know how to walk more uh, closely and more like Christ. Use soft and gentle words when we're critiquing one another. Now, I would recommend things like, may I offer a suggestion? Or something to consider is this? Or would you like my advice? Proverbs 15:1 says, "A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger." I mean, would you really want to take advice from somebody who's just always bickering at you? say, "No you need to do it this way or that's horrible. Why are you doing it that way? No one wants to take advice from somebody. It may even be the right advice. But when you're offering a critique with somebody, it must be done in a gentle way, and it must be done in a biblical way manner. Harsh words will not cause someone to want to listen to you or to change. Recently I heard uh, a well-known Bible teacher that addressed a doctrine that somebody asked him about and he said, well quite honestly I haven't looked at it because the first person who approached me was like three years ago and they did it in such a harsh manner attacking me before I even knew what doctrine they're talking about and so it turned me off from the get-go. So a lot of times it's not what we say but it's how we say it now? Before offering anybody a suggestion or a criticism, ask yourself: Am I open to be critiqued? Am I open to being corrected in in my life, in my Christian walk? Psalm one forty one five. David says, "Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds." So. David here is saying, when a righteous person smites me and rebukes me with truth, let my head not refuse it. So I would ask you before you offer any critiques, and I would say especially for husbands and wives at home, before you offer your spouse any critique on anything that they do, ask yourself, am I open to being critiqued by them? Am I open to being critiqued? Uh, Next, when a brother or sister has an ought against you. Matthew 5.23, Jesus says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. This is another situation that could cause conflict. If you know you have a brother or sister that has an ought against you, you're not to just wait and say, oh, well, you know, they need to come to me if they have something against me. You need to go to them and, and pursue and try to be reconciled to that brother and sister in Christ. Brother and sister in Christ. John MacArthur says, quote, reconciliation must precede worship. And even that, friends, must be done in the right manner. If you know a brother or sister has an odd against you, you don't go to them and say, hey, what's your problem? That's not a loving thing, a loving way to do it. You go to them with God's wisdom, as we see in James 3. You go to them with gentleness, you go to them with love, you go to them seeking to be reconciled and seeking peace. We must do a heart check uh, before we go to our brother and sister in Christ. Oftentimes, simply going to our brother and sister. And asking, have I done something to offend you? Oftentimes, that will simply de-escalate the tension that might be between you and that brother or sister in Christ. I remember uh, some years ago, there was a person that I could tell had an awe against me. And uh, time went on. I'm like, I don't know. I guess I've done something because that person no longer talks to me and just kind of acts. You know that that kind of feeling, right? So I called that person and asked, and and they, they said no. Uh, turns out they did they just didn 't share it with me, uh, and they had held it in for so long that it had caused bitterness in their hearts where they just simply could not function around me because I had done something to them in the past that had offended them. so uh, we must go to our brothers and sisters uh, so much as it depends on us. we must seek to be at peace with uh, with all with all men. Those are just some situations. I wanted to kind of get some biblical strategies for. Uh, Again, friends, it's very important that we learn to manage conflict, first and foremost, within our homes, within our marriages. That's the primary place that we must manage conflict and work to grow in unity uh, for Christ. So to summarize this whole topic of conflict management, each of us is responsible. Each one of us, brothers and sisters, is responsible to pursue peace in our relationships within the church, within believers in general, uh, within our family, our spouses, our kids, within our coworkers, even within non-believers, so much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We must use God's wisdom to avoid the things which cause for further conflicts. We must seek the things that make for peace and the things which deflect from Quarreling and conflict, and we must not only avoid situations that po- uh, excuse me. We must not avoid situations that pose risk to conflict, but we must pursue with God's wisdom. And that last point again, oftentimes our our uh, tendency or or the uh, the desire not desire but what we're looking for. Uh, Sometimes we just want to avoid conflict altogether, so we won't address issues, right? That's not the way to operate either. When we're clearly committed in scripture to address certain things, we have to learn to do it in a biblical manner. I want to conclude the teaching of conflict management in Acts chapter 15. Uh, I want to briefly look at a conflict that erupted in the early church, a severe conflict that caused division within the church itself and look to see how it was reconciled and so where this is in acts chapter 15 paul and barnabas just finished their first missionary trip and they're getting ready to go on their second missionary trip well back in chapter 13 a disciple by the name of john mark deserts paul in Pergamus. not just hey i'm i'm gonna leave i'm done like just MIA, missing in action, deserts Paul, goes back to Jerusalem. You'll see in Acts 13 13, he leaves and departs and goes to Jerusalem. So now Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on Paul's second missionary trip. And at verse 36 of chapter 15, it says After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, this was not like a friendly party. Like, oh, okay, you have this disagreement. You want to take John Mark. You go ahead and go that way. And I'll take Silas and I'll go that way. No, it says, if you look at the text, there was a sharp disagreement. Disagreement. And the wording that Luke uses in Acts here when Paul kept insisting, he repeated, no, we're not taking because he deserted them. And that word deserted literally has the idea of revolting in rebellion. It wasn't just he left them. He deserted them in a way that Paul said there's absolutely no way we we are going to take him. And there happened, it's not in the text, but there was a conflict that broke out. There was a sharp disagreement, it said, and I would venture to say that there was probably some emotions on both sides, uh, not to mention Barnabas should have submitted to the apostolic authority of Paul. He said, okay, you know, I don't agree with you, uh, but he wasn't reasonable in that sense. But they deserted, they parted ways because they could not come to terms and manage conflict. So what happened? That's not the end of the story. We learn later that Paul and Barnabas actually make up. If you look at 1 Corinthians nine six, this was five years after this situation in Acts chapter fifteen. Paul brings in Barnabas when he's arguing about uh, taking a wife and taking pay for preaching the gospel. He says there cannot Paul and or cannot me and Barnabas uh, stop working essentially. So he's back with Barnabas five years later. So we don't know how they reconciled, but that gives us hope for when we do have conflict that there is reconciliation. But what about John Mark? What happened to him? Paul was insisting that they did not take John Mark because he deserved them. He revolted. He rebelled. He was done. Whatever the motivation was, he did not want to do the work and he left well, I just love how God just shows the reconciliation. If you look at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter four, his last epistle, Paul is old, older, he's coming to the end of his life. And look what he says, starting in verse nine, he's telling Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Creason's gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And then he says this, pick up Mark, the same Mark that deserted him. This was about 10 years now after. The same Mark that deserted him, that left him MIA in the work of Christ. The same Mark that he had a conflict with Barnabas about not taking, insisted on not taking. He he tells Timothy to pick up Mark and bring him with you And I love this, for he is useful to me for service. How amazing is that? That they had such a sharp disagreement and split, if you will, that within those 10 years, there was reconciliation. Not only reconciliation, but now Mark was useful to Paul in his service. So brothers and sisters, it is imperative as followers of Christ That we pursue peace in our relationships with those around us. That we give the witness to the world as a people who love one another. Who can have such sharp disagreements and have such sharp division and falling out. Yet there's reconciliation because there's pursuing of peace. And may Christ be honored and may Christ be glorified as we seek to live in peace among men. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, first we thank you for pursuing us, for through faith in Christ having peace with you, whom we were enemies, for whom the wrath of God was being poured out upon us. Lord, you made peace through the blood of your cross. We thank you, God, that through Christ we have peace with you we thank you, God, that there is peace in this life, peace with you, and peace in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling for which we have been called. Lord, I know that for me, there's such, there's such emotions that come up when we're offended, that when we're mistreated or when we're misunderstood or misrepresented or misspoken of or attacked or whatever it may be, God. Lord, it is so such a difficult task, God, to walk in God's wisdom and peace and love in the midst of conflict, Lord, but your grace is sufficient. Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit in your word is able, God, to to lead us and guide us to to walk in a way that's pleasing to you when it comes to conflict. God, I pray that you would help us, help us, God, to live in harmony, to live at peace. Lord, to be able to discuss doctrinal disagreements, to be able to sharpen one another and to be able to work these difficult things out, God, amongst believers as they come up and to, God, to do it in a way that honors you. Lord, I pray for the marriages in this Church, God, that we would be able to manage conflict in a biblical way. Help us, God, as husbands and wives to be in harmony with one another. Lord, to be one soul, to be one mind, to be one spirit. Lord, that our children would see the gospel in our marriage, that the world would see the gospel portrayed in our marriages. Lord, I pray for this local church and for all local churches, God, that you would help us to grow in our love for one another and our in our like-mindedness. Help us to grow in managing conflict to avoid the sinfulness of quarreling and arguing and, and all that, God. May we completely avoid that altogether. Lord, we thank you. And if there's anyone, God, listening that's, needs to be reconciled to another brother or sister or uh, whoever, God, I pray that you would help, help them. Uh, Lord, help them to be reconciled to their brother or sister that you may be glorified and honored. Lord, we thank you for the time together, Lord. May we walk circumspectly this week. May we walk in love for one another this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.